Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Aliza Kelly, and I am so thrilled to introduce you all to today's guest. This is Eli Ehrlich, a Cancer Sun, Sagittarius Moon, Sagittarius Rising. And as it turns out, we are speaking just moments after the lunar eclipse in Sagittarius. So this feels very, very tank for our new listeners and for Eli, so that you're not terrified of what I just said. Tank means there are no coincidences. So (laughs) Eli, it's lovely to meet you. Eli is a queer and trans writer, activist, and public speaker. She is the co-founder of Trans Student Educational Resources, one of the largest transgender organizations in the country. Her work and writing have been featured in over 100 publications around the world. Refinery29 named her one of the 30 under 30, and Vogue calls her the new face of feminism. I was going to say the new face of fucking feminism, but I don't think Vogue said that, so I don't want to misattribute the quote. Eli, it is so lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. So I would love to just begin our journey in this episode to hear about your journey. Tell us a little bit about you and how you became a writer, activist, and public speaker, other than, of course, being a Sagittarius moon and Sagittarius rising, which speaks for itself. Ah, of course. So (laughs) that's something I really love to talk about in the trans community. We are so focused on our narratives and how we come to embody our personal experiences. So I came out as queer and trans when I was eight years old, way back in 2003. I actually didn't know the word queer or trans at the time. I just knew that I was a girl. And I was in this really rural community um, way out in the mountains of Northern California. So I felt very isolated and not very supported for who I was. Thankfully, the community largely came around by the late 2000s. It was able to transition as a teenager and got really involved with activism. We have this phrase in the um, in, like youth activist spaces that youth aren't just the future. We're also making the changes you want to see in the world today. And I think that's very timely for all of the youth-led movements that are going on right now from... I mean, really revolutionary uprisings in Chile to all the trans youth around the country who are participating in, well, this very dramatic battle for a fundamental right to exist. So can you tell us a little bit about you, eight years old, not necessarily having the vocabulary to know how to define what you felt, but knowing that you felt these ways that then you would later be able to identify with with the language, what was that experience like for you? How did you, because it feels to me extremely spiritual, right? There's something about it that feels really spiritual to recognize um, self and to have that self-awareness, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just so second nature and maybe as a cis person myself, it seems spiritual to me, but it's actually very commonplace. That's such a good question. I do find it really interesting because a lot of trans people know who we are at a young age. And sometimes we hear about two or three-year-olds who are resisting gender norms and, well, fuck it, that's beautiful. So I sometimes reflect on my eight-year-old self and think, wow, how the hell did I know this? I 
mean, and gender is frankly a social construct. And so recognizing these differences for a lot of people takes time, energy, effort, and a lot of self-valuation. And at the same time, the majority of trans people do know who we are at a very young age. I think this is absolutely amazing because we have people who are discovering their trans in their 60s to 80s. And we have people who are, well, six to eight who are also going on the same journey. So at the time, I felt just this um, kinship with womanhood, this sort of relationship with it. And at the same time, this um, non-identification with with the boys and um boyhood and it's very interesting because i liked and still like very masculine things sometimes so it um it's very complex in how we separate out our gender identity which is who we are gender expression which is how we express ourselves and all of these little um habits and um tendencies that we have that may be gendered in our society so was at at 8 years old when you were recognizing that the construct wasn't fitting what made sense and felt right for you were there certain um moments that you recall that you knew that what was sort of being imposed upon you on gender was not fitting who what your truth was wow well i would say all of it all of all of the gender roles, expectations, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> that makes a lot um, of sense. And at the time, like I, I was much more, um, I was much more feminine, and sometimes I kind of felt forced into that femininity because of how hard I would go to resist boyhood. I mean, I was eight mm-hmm. years old, stealing my sister's makeup, um, stealing like little scarf wrapping to turn into skirts that I would wear to school. Um, so I was, I was that trans kid labeled as a school distraction. And I would say I was very distracted by my teacher's misbehavior. And at the same time, like I was told to look in a mirror and tell myself that it was boy. Clearly that didn't work out very well, but it does really provoke a lot of thought into how we're treating trans kids and the sort of education we may need to present to young people frankly, at a very early age. Well, what do you think that that looks like in actuality, in practice? What type of education would should parents have going into having, you know, into even just having a kid from the jump? <laughs> do you think, I mean, I think that it's obviously ridiculous how gendered toys are, right? Like that there are these toys that girls should play with. And then there are these toys that boys should play with. Like to me, that is obviously like a very straightforward, very clear separation that we create on the binary between what children are stimulated and engaged by and what excites joy and passion and pleasure. But even going further than just the obvious, like girls can play with blocks and boys can play with dolls. Like Are there even just these deeper societal treatments that parents should start to unlearn? Because I know that on this podcast, we do have a lot of young parents, listeners in particular. Wow, that's such a deep question because there are so many amazing tools for parents, children, students, and elders to learn with together. When I think of um, early childhood education, there's actually this amazing publishing company called Flamingo Rampant that produces 
young to middle children aged books. And they focus specifically on gender norms, gender and sexuality, and how to teach that to young people. I mean, it's very simple ways. And then also at TSCR, we have the gender unicorn. Great to look up for anyone listening right now. The gender unicorn is this cool teaching tool for all ages where you can select along different lines, your gender identity, gender expression, sex assigned at birth, emotional attraction, physical attraction, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of shows how separated all of these are. I know plenty of cis women who are very butch and might even be straight. All of these things are completely separated. And I think that's just one early fundamental toolbox that we can use to help people of all ages understand the differences between gender, sexuality, what you are assigned at birth, which is what the doctor basically announces when you're born, silly habit. And really parsing those out is so important. Now we've been using this for, God, nearly a decade at this point. And I mean, the gender unicorn has sparked protests in North Carolina. People have brought it to Canadian um, Senate to talk about um, trans rights in schools. It has been all over the place. So it's been a very useful tool in really educating, at this point, tens of millions of people on trans issues. And one of the things that we that you had mentioned to me before we started recording today is that when you began taking your hormone treatment when you were a teenager, I think you said 15, that it was really difficult for you to access those resources. Um, can you share with us a little bit about that experience and then even backing up a little bit? What were the conversations like that you were having with your family leading up to that? And did it take what kind of education, if any, was required for them to be able to get on board with this? That's such a great question because at the time, my family didn't really have the sort of education they needed to to really embrace, understand, and accept me for who I was. My mom works in medicine and she read a book finding that the vast majority of gender nonconforming youth don't end up being trans, which is true. And we still see these um, statistics from the 90s cited today. The thing is, there's a huge difference between being gender nonconforming, dressing or presenting yourself a, a certain way, and saying, I am, I am a girl, I am this gender, that gender. So because of this misinformation, which is still being circulated now by people in Congress, by anti-trans activists, by far-right Christians, that we expect gender unconforming youth to be cis in, under any circumstances, which is really ridiculous. And so after reading that, my parents actually were really, really unaccepting. They would punish me for acting femininely. They prevented me from wearing makeup to school. I mean. I was eight. I probably shouldn't have been wearing makeup anyway, but you know, let kids be kids. I wore makeup at eight. Actually, <laughs> the exact same way I'm wearing it today. So. <laughs> oh my God, that's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, I was a lot. Oh, I love the cat eye. That's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so it's awkward. Frankly, transitioning is really awkward sometimes, especially when like you don't know what you're doing. You've been told for years that you shouldn't do this. You're going to be unhappy if you do this. This isn't the right way to go. And 
at the same time, like I knew what I wanted and I knew that I wanted to transition since I was eight years old. I actually didn't even know the word trans at the time. I said, I remember the phrase I used. I like, I like girls and boys and I'm a girl, but I didn't have this word queer or this word trans to describe myself, which is, well, that presented quite a few difficulties too. <laughs> so it was awkward really getting them there. And by the time they were ready to accept me when I was about 12, um, I didn't want to talk to it anymore. I just associated my gender nonconformity with with punishment, with being mm. teased and berated and denied my own agency to express myself. So at that point, I I didn't really know what to do. And I, I think this climactic moment was my eighth grade um commencement ceremony where I was going to enter high school. They had the whole town in one room. Mind you, this is a very small town, but it was still enough people to feel deeply ashamed of being ha um, having to be forced to wear um, clothes designed for men. And so at that point, I, um, I went to it. I asked my parents not to plenty of times. My dad worked for the school, so it would have been really awkward if I didn't show up. And I left a little, um, I think I'm transgender, now what do I do pamphlet on my mom's bedside stand, hoping they would oh understand gosh. what that meant and why I didn't want to go through this ceremony dressed in a polo shirt. I mean, to be frank, like nobody should go through any ceremony dressed in a polo shirt. It's just a no, horrible no, idea. No, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> yeah, ever. we don't, like, <laughs> I support all lifestyle choices, all expressions, but no polo shirts, please. Yeah, I mean, I feel like what you're evoking to me also is this this very dark time in the mid-2000s when people were wearing double polo shirts with a popped collar, and then they were also wearing various Livestrong bracelets on their arms. Oh, and that no. memory is very etched into my head. So, yeah, oh there's some fashion trauma from polo shirts, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So it was this <laughs> double trauma of being denied my identity and being and being forced to wear a polo shirt, which is awful. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I walked out in this, like, graduation ceremony. I'm, like, crying the whole time. Afterwards, um, my mom has the audacity to tell me, I think you're having an identity crisis. And I just... I just think, oh my God, you're having a crisis over my identity. Right, I know who I am. Identity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at that point, they realized, oh shit, we fucked up. And then after four or five years of refusing to accept me, they finally come around. Um, within um, a little over a year, I got on hormones and I'm finally able to express myself and not have to go through um, testosterone, like all of testosterone puberty, which really just would have destroyed me. And I think this now finally brings us to the present where we still have senators who think that um, letting children express themselves is child abuse. And we're hearing this again and again, especially in the trans community, that allowing trans kids to be ourselves, express ourselves the way we want to, use the right restrooms, and go on puberty blockers or hormones is not only child abuse, but a, a felony in some states now. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's super, super heavy. I am curious from the perspective of people who think that 
well, you know, when you're a kid or when you're a teenager, you don't know what you're doing, right? And here, the truth is, is that I remember the tattoos that I wanted to get when I was 12 and 13. And I, it is a miracle that I didn't get them. Actually, side note story is that I went to, a t I w was a very bad kid. And I saved up my money and I went to a tattoo parlor that I knew did tattoos on people who are under 18. And I was going to get obviously like on the upperest part of my thigh. So my parents wouldn't see a, a tattoo that I I'm just very grateful I didn't get. It was like an eyeball coming out of a plant that I drew in class. Fabulous that I didn't get it because I was $10 short. And this place was so sketchy that they were like, oh, it's actually 70 and you have 60. So never mind. So I'm glad I didn't get it. Uh, there, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't do a lot of things that would have been permanent when I was at that stage of my life. So for that, for in that state of mind with some people, which I'm sure that that exists, that people are like, well, how do you know that what you are, who you are at 12, 13 is going to be who you want to be at 23 or 33 or 43. So how does that fit into the conversation, especially when puberty blocking hormones or anything that would change sort of the biology comes into it? How do they know that they're cis? How do they know they're a man or a woman? Um, they choose to go through puberty. So why not let trans kids choose to not um, go through the wrong one? And there's also a big point here that tattoos can be removed and so can <laughs> going on hormones or um, actually puberty blockers don't even have major side effects most of the time. There can be some, there can be um long term or excuse me if you're on them for long term there can be some temporary bone density issues but eventually you do go on hormones and those issues fade away it's pretty rare to um have regrets in the trans community too um it's under one percent of trans people or excuse me one percent of people who transition whether trans or not afterwards who do have any regrets so we're talking about a small percentage of a percentage here and I mean, don't get me wrong, like this is brought up all the time and like these people do exist. Most of them, by the way, are supportive of trans people, but there are always these few vocal ones that are brought into the courtrooms and these um, in the legislatures to protest against trans people having very basic rights. And well, I think it's great they can express themselves. They shouldn't bring their own experiences onto other people. Totally. I mean, I, I also want to clarify for any listeners and, and for you too, Eli, that I am in no way, shape or form saying that the ugly tattoo that I wanted when I was 12, 13 is at all similar to the experience of being misgendered and needing to have agency over who you are and how you express yourself and how you are experienced publicly. Completely different reality, completely different circumstance. Oh, yeah. What I like to say with um, what we call gatekeeping or setting all of these procedures and therapist notes that you have to get before going on any sort of hormone therapy, puberty blockers, or getting any surgery is that why prioritize the one in 1,000 people who may regret this procedure versus the 999 that we have to inflict this horrible, embarrassing, humiliating, dehumanizing gatekeeping process toward? 
And why, why does that 1% of 1% matter more than those 999 people? Right. I mean, exactly. I, something that I feel very strongly about as I continue to try to learn about experiences that I don't have is recognizing it's not my fucking experience. <laughs> That's why I'm learning about it. And for me to even try to, and, you know, I guess me as the microcosm here for the people who are vocally going to Congress and trying to deny people the ability to do what they need to do is to invalidate that experience completely and say, no, you don't know your experience. I know your experience because I wanted to get a tattoo when I was 13 is basically the rhetoric, which does not make sense. Because if what you're saying is that, hey, listen to these people, these young people who need to transform in order for them to be true to themselves, in order for them to be authentic, to have safe experiences in this lifetime, that obviously is going to take precedent than someone who has no, who has never been in that situation and is imposing their own ideology about something that they have no idea about. Absolutely. And the, I mean, forcing trans kids to go through the wrong puberty is actively inflicting harm too. Right. Um, Because there's no, there's no reason to. And the same can also be said for trans adults who sometimes struggle to get hormones. So what do you think is the course of action for continuing to move the greater collective in the right direction? And how do people become, I mean, religion and America and religion is like its own monster to me. It it seems like they're very, very not interested in negotiating anything. (laughs) How do we sort of like, I, I mean, I'm very hopeful in young people. I'm very hopeful in Gen Z. I love the Pluto and Sagittarius generation at large. <laughs> but for the people who are un- not, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, not to like classify all people who are older as problematic, but for the people who are still holding the power, who are refusing to um, relinquish their understanding of this, how do we continue to move things in the right direction, both in terms of providing young people with the resources, the services, and the safety that they need, and in terms of educating people. Is it possible for us to, for people to unlearn and to become more compassionate and more understanding of of the needs of trans youth? Well, like I was saying earlier, educating folks at a young age is a really great way to go about it. And the fact is, there are plenty of states that ban education on issues of gender and sexuality. And at the same time, as far as it goes for conservatives, like, uh, I mean, most trans people I know just want to be left the fuck alone by the government. Like, there's, there's no reason why we should have any legislation or really any national policy or statewide policy on who can or can't take hormones. So this is, I mean... It's been very, (laughs) my cat just licked my finger. (laughs) (laughs) My dog actually has been licking my finger the whole time. I don't know if you hear her crying, but for some reason she is, she wants to communicate. (laughs) So maybe your cat does too. (laughs) I I just washed my hands. I got some very tasty soap and was like getting very excited with (laughs) 
So I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Mike Hutt supports trans rights. So, <laughs> and you have the lick to prove it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. So, so we've been talking about education, um, oh, hormones in the water supply. Easy. So no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I swear though, there are, there are people um, on the far right who I've been um, seeing like re- resort to these conspiracy theories that we, um, that trans people really want to, um, put hormones in the water supply, which is just so out there. And then you see them speaking so to legislature wild. and seeing like conservative politicians who were elected, like nodding their heads, like, oh yes, this is definitely happening. I mean, side note, it seems like conspiracy theorists love talking about water. It seems like it's one of their favorite, um, like, it's one of their favorite places to impose conspiracy. And it actually, I've done a little research on this. This is like historic, is that it's always a water contamination, the sulfur in the water, the minerals in the water, but are actually toxins in the water. Um, And then, of course, with water diets are a really big QAnon thing, for which is a fasting. Like people go on these water diets where they don't eat and they are just drinking water, but it's like alkaline water. Like water seems to be really uh, an one of those entrenched conspiracy theory things. So I'm not surprised that it's there's now hormones in the water, too. I mean, oh, God. So I, I have been on quite a few QAnon forums recently because I'm, um, I'm also a because um, I'm also in QAnon. I'm also in QAnon, <laughs> by the way. You're interviewing a, um, a QAnon conspiracy theorist. Um, <laughs> Epstein didn't kill himself, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, so I actually have been on because I've been, um, I'm a PhD researcher and I'm also working with trans people on the far right to unpack their beliefs, how they come to them, et cetera, Whoa. et cetera. And um, some of these um, trans people, along with some cis people, actually do believe the government is putting hormones in the water supply to um, cause this um, feminization of the population. Totally out there, completely ridiculous, no basis in reality, by the way. And um, and that's um, that's now one of the far right conspiracy theories as to why more trans people are coming out. It's not increased acceptance, not increased visibility, oh not education. <laughs> hormones in the water supply and soy products. Ooh, soy products are a big one. I mean, eating tofu definitely turned me trans. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> oh, wow. So can we talk a little bit about what is the work that you're doing with far right conservatives who have, who are reconciling their gender expression? Absolutely. I knew you would be interested in this one. Thank you. <laughs> Everyone is. It's, um, I mean, I, I think the question is usually, why the hell would any trans people join far-right groups? And I, I was wondering that too. So <laughs> I'm, um, I'm finishing my doctorate right now. I'm not so coincidentally researching people on the far, like mostly queer and trans people on the far left who are um, rejecting respectability politics and appeals to power. And then I'm also um, researching specifically trans people on the far right who are very entrenched in power and believe all sorts of wild things about the trans experience. <laughs> now, I want to emphasize being trans on the far right, not a trend whatsoever. Um, thankfully, there are fewer of them every day, but 
there are some very interesting questions to be brought up by the existence of any trans people on the far right. I mean, look at the most famous trans person in the world right now, Caitlyn Jenner. Um, I really wish I could say Elliot Page would have been so much better, but um, Kate, unfortunately, Caitlyn is still the most well-known trans face. So she is, I mean, she's very far right, Trump supporting Republican, and it really gets you thinking of how these these different identities can be reconciled. And so what this research is doing is looking into the ways that these individuals come to this conclusion and how we might be able to prevent other, not just trans people, but people in any marginalized, oppressed group from also adopting these beliefs. Right. I mean, it's it seems paradoxical, of course, to um, to be in a to I to personally be part of a group that is so oppressed societally and then to perpetuate oppression uh, in tangential politics or ideologies how is how does that exist i mean is it like that sort of like just exceptionalism is that what it ultimately comes down to so i started this research having spoken to frankly quite a few trans people in the far right before i started doing calls for um online surveys email like email-based um, sort of oral history format interviews. I was like, okay, cool. Maybe I'll talk to three, maybe even five people. And within a month, 60, 60 people reached out. So I have I've started about 40 interviews with trans people in the far right so far and found all sorts of different rationale for mm. their, um, their different ideologies. And it really spans in a whole wide range of, kind of horrific thinking that um, sort of underlines how we are presented information today. So a lot of them really buy into respectability politics, thinking trans people on the left, even trans liberals are going way too far to, um, to conspiratorial thinking in that the trans agenda is actually a Soros-run conspiracy. There's only a few real trans people did I hear? Is that is that George Soros? That is George Soros. Yes, um, <laughs> is it is George actually <laughs> a it is actually a deep state conspiracy by the Jewish mob. Um, as a trans, like I, I, I'm Jewish, and um, I will never announce that to any of them because I swear, if this was like 30 years ago, holy shit! <laughs> right? Yeah, I I did a little research uh, in 2020 because people kept telling me to wake up. So I was, you know, some person kept sending me these YouTube videos. Uh, I decided to, you know, skip through the highlight reel of one 45 minute video with a ex stuntman in Hollywood who it was kind of just this mashup of um, any popular figure from the past like 100 years. But then we also get like George Washington in there and like the Freemasons. I, it really was exhaustive, but I got to the end and it was, turns out it was all just anti-Semitism <laughs> at the root of it. And I was like, you could have just like, we, you could have just told me that you were anti-Semitic. Like I didn't, why did you make me watch this 45 minute montage of like <laughs> Epstein and Katy Perry and like Lady Gaga making a circle with her hand in order to get there? Like, <laughs> oh, you just hate Jewish people. Okay, cool. Thank you. 
for letting me know. Oh my God. So um, while doing this research, I've been speaking to so many amazing writers. Um, I mean, one woman who was interviewing um, women involved in the Ku Klux Klan in the early 1900s, which is fantastic. Um, By the way, it's called Woman of the Klan. And another woman who is, um, or who was interviewing um, women who were married to or were active members of the Nazi party in Germany in the 1940s. And um, she actually had a very interesting take on um, continuing this research because now instead of saying, um, now instead of saying like the Jewish conspiracy, they'll say it's Soros or the deep state instead and it's really the same thing like you said that hidden behind both lady gaga or Katy perry while they're making (laughs) hand signals (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's kind of amazing how when you get to a lot of the roots of these things they actually are just i mean it's it's different white supremacy and you know it's it's white supremacy disguised through conspiracy theories through oh what is it illuminati rhetoric like there is so much that is covering it but really when you start to just get to the source of it it's variations of white supremacy absolutely absolutely i mean actually just two days ago um there was a neo-nazi group in berlin that's somewhat active that um posted my name along with other jewish trans leaders with like in um big like printed out pages all over berlin um that said keep your children safe and then list i mean listed all of these trans jews i'm kind of implying that being trans is somehow a jewish conspiracy despite us existing forever oh my goodness oh i have goosebumps that's really scary um that's really really scary for you I mean, it's far away. It doesn't seem like they've ever acted on anything. But this is unfortunately the reality that many trans people, and especially Jewish trans people, trans people of color, et cetera, et cetera, have to deal with directly every day. Do you, are Is social media a safe space for you? That's a great question. I do find a lot of affirmation, comfort, and friendship on social media. I mean, I really love engaging with people all over the world who are embodying transness in new, bold, exciting ways. So mostly positive. Mostly positive. Yes. (laughs) And now don't get me wrong. There's, I mean, as I'm sure every single person listening to this knows, it's a lot of negativity on social media. Just don't read the comment section and they'll all be a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. So as we find our way to some conclusions, even though this is such a non-conclusive thing because there's just so much to be done, so much to explore, so much to unpack. I'm I'm wondering if for our listeners, you could provide any action items or suggestions of ways that they can continue to create safe spaces in both the microcosm of their own individual lives and the macrocosm through the collective uh, for trans youth, for trans people, for trans Jewish people, for (laughs) all different types of people who are encountering this oppression. There are so many amazing resources out there for, I mean, for everyone, for trans people, for gender non-conforming folks. And I, I think this actually brings up another topic that trans liberation will help everybody. Decoupling gender and gender expression 
recognizing the many different ways that people can live and express ourselves, that is part of the trans movement. And so in terms of concrete resources, there are, I mean, I always have to recommend trans student educational resources at transstudent.org for any educational related materials. Then there's also Sylvia Rivera Law Project and Trans Legal Defense and Education Fund for the trans legal issues. If you work with children or are at a school in any way, Flamingo Rampant is absolutely wonderful. I love all the folks who work there. And otherwise, Google is always your friend. I know a lot of trans people can get frustrated when asking about, say, our genitalia, which unfortunately is sometimes a daily occurrence for some of us. So always just Google issues if you don't know about them. It's really easy. Cool. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being here. This is truly enlightening and a really important and meaningful conversation. So where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram at Eli Ehrlich or on my website at EliEhrlich.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. 